mean? You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. If you do any sort of sports medicine, you've heard of the meniscus, that shock absorber between the bones and the knee. Do you know what a discoid meniscus is? Why is this even important when discussing young athletes? Today on the podcast, we discuss the discoid meniscus, something that may have seen you, but you may not have seen it yet. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, I'm joined by several members of the organization PRISM, the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society that we highlighted throughout the month of January. I was part of an instructional course lecture that specifically addressed the discoid meniscus. Since we weren't able to have this panel in person, I thought we could use this podcast to have a discussion about this condition and raise awareness of this condition to our listeners who may not be a part of PRISM. If you're not a member yet, make sure to check out PRISM after listening, as this annual meeting's contents are available and viewable for this entire year. I really enjoyed the format that was utilized, and it was great to be able to watch some of the things on demand and also be able to see some things in real time. Considering it was virtual, I thought it was fantastic. I have four of the five panelists from the Discoid Meniscus course lecture on the podcast today, Dr. John Schlechter, Dr. Jennifer Beck, Dr. Erica Schallert, and Dr. Nick Purcell. Dr. Jennifer Bray was also part of our instructional course lecture, but not part of this podcast today. Dr. John Schlechter is a pediatric sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Southern California. He completed his fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at Rady Children's in San Diego and his sports fellowship at the Orthopedic Specialty Institute in Orange, California. He serves as a board member for the American Osteopathic Board of Orthopedic Surgery and has lectured nationally and internationally, as well as has numerous publications in the areas of pediatric sports surgery. Dr. Jennifer Beck is an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics at the Orthopedic Institute for Children, part of the University of California in Los Angeles. She completed her orthopedic residency at Loyola University in Chicago, followed by her pediatric orthopedic surgery fellowship at UCLA, and then a sports medicine fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. She is active in multiple orthopedic organizations and has published numerous articles on pediatric sports medicine topics. Dr. Erica Schallert is a musculoskeletal radiologist at Texas Children's Hospital. She completed her fellowship training at Baylor College of Medicine. She is a member of numerous radiology organizations and has research interest in pediatric musculoskeletal imaging and has a special interest in resident and fellow education. Dr. Nick Purcell is a doctor of physical therapy with specialized training in sports and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He practices at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston and acts as an adjunct professor educating students of physical therapy. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mark. Looking forward to this. Why don't we start with just describing for our listeners what exactly we are discussing in talking about a discoid meniscus? How common is it overall? And for my surgical colleagues, how often is this something you are seeing in your offices? It's an interesting thing is that in my practice, I've been in practice for six years here in Southern California. I see this actually quite frequently, and I operate on probably about 20 or 30 of these cases every year. That being said, I think even the average orthopedic surgeon who's been in practice for long periods of time may have only encountered this once or twice in their career. And so I think it's something we do see in particular down here in Southern California due to some different racial and ethnic variations that happen with this. Although it's very common in my practice, I often tell my patients that numerous sports surgeons, adult sports surgeons may be very unfamiliar with this because it is on the scheme of pathologies very rare. It's present in approximately about 3 to 5% of the U.S. population. 
And as Jen kind of brought up, it is somewhat different in different ethnicities, such as in the Asian populations, it could be as high as 15%, such as in Japan. So that's something to kind of keep an eye out for. A lot of times, too, if I see meniscal pathology in a child or an adolescent in the first or second decade of life, for me, a lot of times it's a discoid lateral meniscus until proven otherwise. The discoid meniscus is kind of an abnormally shaped or sized meniscus, typically on the outside part of the knee, can be on the inside part of the knee or the medial part, and comes in all varieties. It can be a, a big old block, and a lot of times when I'm talking to patients, I'll describe it as like, you know, a discus kind of like a frisbee and then it comes in a fully formed discus or a partially formed one and then also has that peripheral rim instability and that's one of the ones that sometimes when the meniscus looks normal like on mri is really difficult to pick up that child sometimes will come in with locking potentially can have an mri that's read as normal so it, it can be it could be a tricky thing to pick up and something that does show up and as you said in the beginning of the podcast sometimes sees us but we may not see it and from a radiologist standpoint, I get to see it quite frequently. I have the benefit of interpreting the images that are ordered by our 20-some orthopedic surgeons, as well as about the same amount of PAs, in addition to providers outside of Texas Children's Hospital. So we see it quite a bit. We even see it in children who are getting images for other reasons, osteomyelitis and an infection in the bone or in the joint. And we're seeing these discoid meniscus sort of incidentally there. Yeah. And classically, a discoid meniscus, we refer to it as the snapping knee syndrome. So what are typical concerns that someone who comes into an office and maybe they'll present to an athletic trainer evaluating a patient with a suspected discoid meniscus? What types of things might you see on physical exam or even just in their history? Yeah, I'll see them sometimes come in, you know, with a reproducible click clunk that they can demonstrate on their own. Sometimes it'll happen at end ranges of motion, knee flexion or extension. And the thing that I really try to keep a lookout for is the knee flexion contracture or the inability to, to get the knee fully straight from discoid meniscus. That doesn't necessarily occur in everyone, but when it starts to become symptomatic, it's something that you do see. I think it's a really interesting thing, especially for our primary care specialists to understand what this is, because kids come in all the time saying, my joints pop, click, and the majority of the time, it's actually something very benign. We all know kids are a bit hypermobile. Sometimes it causes that. Sometimes we really can't define what the popping and clicking is coming from. And so this is the one thing, especially when there's popping and clicking around the knee, it can be very reproducible. And the patient just, you know, I kind of call it their party trick is that they can show their friends that that pops and clicks. And maybe it's been happening since they were two or three years old. And now they're seven, eight, nine. And so we see it in a very young population. And sometimes it can be very benign that they're they're really not bothered by it, but very specifically, you'll see and feel this popping meniscus. And it can be very profound that you even sometimes can visualize this meniscus moving on the lateral joint, the lateral aspect of the knee. But completely agree with John that when I see patients don't have that ability to get their terminal extension and have some lateral sided knee pain or clicking, I get very concerned about this diagnosis. Yeah, I agree with you guys. As a physical therapist, you know, we're always looking out for things that don't make sense when we get referrals from physicians. We're lucky enough to have some amazing physicians at TCH that are quick to refer to physical therapy, and they trust us very much to communicate when, when things aren't making sense. We're also lucky enough at TCH to have a, a sports residency for physical therapists, and we run a lab every Thursday, and one of the things we go over are, are special tests and making sure we're able to rule out anything that shouldn't be in our clinic. And one of those things that we use for meniscus injuries is the cluster of specificity. 
And that was something that was published by Lowry et al. in 2006. And it's basically five things that you want to watch for with meniscus injuries. Any kind of history of joint locking or clicking, like we talked about, joint line tenderness, positive McMurray's test, pain with flexion over pressure or lack of flexion, and then pain with extension over pressure or like a bounce home test that's positive. And they actually found that if all five of those are positive, then the specificity for a meniscus tear is 99%. We've actually had a few patients where they got an MRI, it was negative for a meniscus tear, and they had all five of those. And one of our physical therapists was pretty persistent about being like, hey, look, like I don't think this person is someone with psychosomatic pain. I think that there's a meniscus tear. And sure enough, they did a, a scope on her and there was a meniscus tear. So I really like to use those five things to rule in or rule out meniscus problems. But I will be honest, you know, I haven't done that with a discoid meniscus. So I don't know. I'm sure that study was not done on discoid menisci. And we can talk about that a little bit further because obviously not every discoid meniscus when they present is going to come in as being torn. You know, I have always described it to my patients as just your your body was a little bit too much generous and gave you some extra bonus cushion there. And sometimes it starts to cause some problems. And I would agree with Jen. I mean, these can be sometimes pretty dramatic on physical exam as the popping you see along the lateral side of the knee. And we, we can discuss the medial discoid meniscus, which is a much less common problem. But certainly we're, we're usually talking about a lateral sided popping sort of phenomenon there. What would trigger you to start doing a workup for somebody if they come in and, and they say, yeah, I got this popping in my knee. It doesn't really bother me or the parents are concerned about the popping, but it doesn't affect the kid's ability to play or participate or do any activity. What would trigger you to start doing further workup on that kid? We have to think about what's the natural history and long-term history of meniscus tears in general. I think from a surgical perspective, it's concerning if they have so much instability and we really can identify it to that lateral side of the knee, the lateral joint line. If they're having that much instability, even if it's pain-free, I'm going to at least start with an MRI so I can characterize how much of a discoid it is, how severe the tearing is, because we know long-term history of people who have meniscus tears really are at higher risk for chondral damage, cartilage damage that may not be repairable, and that typically over time, those symptoms tend to get worse, that the popping and clicking do get worse as the instability worsens or the terror itself increases in severity. And so even if it's pain-free, if they have those mechanical symptoms, I'm aggressive about getting an MRI so I can have an honest conversation with the family about what they can expect in the future and what the benefits potentially would be from surgical stabilization. Yeah, I think Jen summed it up really nice. I usually start with a definite discussion as to, you know, where have they been? Is this, the, you know, am I the first physician they're seeing? Sometimes you're the third or fourth person you know, that they're seeing and they're still trying to achieve a diagnosis and they have all the signs of, you know, a knee that doesn't go straight, the visible subluxation and clunking of the knee. I mean, that's somebody who's definitely, I think, going to be closer to wanting to have something done treatment than somebody who just has occasional knee pain and you're the first physician they're seeing and is otherwise, you know, running, jumping and doing everything without any restrictions. Now, the radiographic role for me, you know, too, is looking at, you know, lower limb alignment to see if there's anything that's going to put extra pressure in that area or if the discoid meniscus is changing alignment of the knee. And also sometimes we see kind of secondary osteochondral lesions with lucencies in the lateral femoral condyle, which is a phenomenon that doesn't happen in every discoid meniscus, but something that I definitely look for. If I start seeing radiographic changes, that's going to be something that's going to trigger the MRI and then, the, you know, the real conundrum, too, is kind of the adolescent that says their knee locks and that they can't get it straight and they go to get an MRI after the knee unlocks because a lot of times when they show up in an emergency room or an urgent care with a locked knee, by the time they get the MRI ordered and, you know, set up, 
which is usually not in the same visit, the knee will go unlocked and then the MRI is read as normal. And then that's, for me, sometimes the Risberg variant of the discoid lateral meniscus, where the meniscus morphologically looks pretty normal in an MRI, and that's sometimes hard to pick up. So that's a tough one, too. And maybe Jen can you know, further comment on if she's seen this phenomenon. But these are things that are arthroscopically diagnosed, not necessarily with MRI. We have to kind of go in there and actually see how hypermobile the meniscus is. And the ones that I've repaired, you know, the patient's symptoms have improved and gone away and the locking phenomenon goes away. So I think it is an entity that is a little bit more of a challenge to pick up. So for me, it's kind of history, physical, definitely trying to elucidate the natural history for the family and also kind of, you know, how much they want to do about it at the time of presentation. So talking about imaging there from both Jen and John, I think it's a perfect transition to get Erica's input on this. And you have a lofty task as a radiologist whose life is explaining things through pictures of now having to use the spoken word to describe things to us on a podcast. But I'd love to get your take as far as where do you think is an appropriate workup radiologically when we're talking about evaluating someone with a popping or a snapping knee and what things you may be looking for as a radiologist that may clue us in as clinicians or athletic trainers or physical therapists who are also seeing these patients. As was mentioned, there are some subtle findings on radiographs, and those would be a hypoplastic lateral tibial spine. You can also see some widening of the joint space. One thing you have to be very careful in the pediatric population is they're skeletally immature, so they may have growth cartilage, which is clear and look loosened on the x-ray and won't show up. And so it can kind of falsely look like there's a big joint space when really it's just a lot of growth cartilage still, which is normal and appropriate for their age. You can also start seeing some squaring of the lateral condyle. When we are looking at MRI, it seems like traditionally on the radiology side and then also the orthopedic side, it seems like there's a lot of focus on looking at the sagittal images. I have found that in clinical practices that that's not as helpful. The coronal MRI, so that's, you know, looking kind of straight on as if you were looking at the person is for me where it's on my checklist to make sure that there is verify whether there is or isn't a discoid meniscus. So if it's a complete discoid meniscus, this is rather easy on a coronal MRI because the meniscus covers the entire surface of the plateau on that side, usually lateral side and sometimes medial side. And really we're talking about the body and the free edge coming all the way over across the entire plateau. If it's 50% or more, then you can usually eyeball it and it would be a partial discoid meniscus. In pediatrics, we can also use the on the coronal MRI. You measure from the periphery of the meniscus to the free edge, and then you measure from the transverse width of the proximal tibial plateau, medial laterally, and you divide that. And if it's 20% or more, that's consistent with a partial discoid meniscus. Now, on the sagittal images, there are all these talk about bow ties and counting slices and I don't think that's really realistic in practice, and especially in pediatric radiology, because you've got different MRIs, different sequences at different hospitals that are being performed at different thicknesses, which you may not be aware of and difficult to decipher also when just looking at someone else's images. And then also pediatric patients come in all different sizes. While that might work for an adult size where everyone's kind of more similar sizes, you may miss a discoid meniscus in a smaller patient if you're just counting the slices of the bow tie on a sagittal MRI. So that's something I try and 
teach our radiology trainees and then the other specialties that we come into contact. And Nick and I have the, we're fortunate to, we actually meet once a month for our kind of arthroscopy conferences and talk about these types of topics between multi the primary sports medicine physicians, the orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine physicians, physical therapy, radiologists really have great discussions in terms of the challenges related to these patients. And then also the arthroscopy correlation, things that were either missed on the MRI or found on the arthroscopy to all kind of help us move forward in terms of our understanding. And then the second point, as a radiologist, we have to recognize that there is a discoid meniscus or not. Secondly, we're looking for tears. And then thirdly, the second I realize it's a discoid meniscus, I'm looking at those meniscal capsular attachments. And we all know that in discoid menisci, the meniscal capsular attachments are deficient. One of the named variants is the Risberg variant of a discoid meniscus. So I'm always looking for those popliteal meniscal fascicles to see if they're there or not. And as we get further along in our knowledge of discoid menisci, we've been able to see instability on an MRI without a tear in a discoid meniscus by looking beyond the bow tie is what I like to say, and sometimes seeing some subtle soft tissue edema around the meniscus in the adjacent soft tissues of the periphery, kind of showing that it's hypermobile and probably contributing to some of the patient's symptoms. Erica, that's really great information. And I think it's really interesting, your comments about the bow tie sign, because from the orthopedic surgery standpoint, the residents and everyone we go and talk to, that is the classic thing that people are taught is that that bow tie sign. And I agree that I think it's highly unreliable based on patient size, the type of MRI they've had, just the positioning of the MRI. And I really think we need to improve our ability to describe these using other factors. And and you listed a bunch of great ones, which I think is, is so helpful for the audience. A question I'd have for you is I often have radiologists who will maybe be a little bit confused. They're seeing some signs. Maybe they're not quite familiar with the discoid meniscus pathology. Maybe they're not pediatric MSK radiologists. And sometimes I'll have at the end of my report that they'll recommend uh, actually doing an MR arthrogram to try and further define this. Can you comment on that and what you think the utility of adding that additional test would be for this pathology? There is a role for MR arthrography, and mainly that would be in a patient where they've already had surgery, partial meniscectomy, or debridement kind of of the the edge or the saucerization that you guys do for these discoid meniscus or a repair. Previously, if the non-arthrographic MRI is kind of non-diagnostic, you can often tell kind of the signs of what looks like a healed or repaired meniscus. But when there's a question of that, then I think an MR arthrography can be helpful. And there's been a few situations when we will do an MR arthrography, but that's in a post-operative patient. And then also there's clinical input too. So a lot of times the orthopedic surgeon, there's enough clinical concern that they're going to go straight to arthroscopy anyway. And some rare cases we'll do like a CT arthrography in a patient who had a really extensive bad gunshot wound and the surgeon just kind of needs a roadmap of, you know, what's going on with the menisci. But for a non-surgical knee, we would not need an MR arthrogram for those details. I think regular standard sports non-contrast MRI of the knee um, is fine. I agree that sometimes when the discoid meniscus, menisci tear, it can be a very confusing pattern. Um, It may be called like a, a bucket handle and it may be a bucket handle, but when these are so like bulbous and fat and when you have tearing at the meniscal capsular junction, these will shift and they'll kind of bunch up like these really fat sort of 
jelly donuts, which is confusing. And it's more common for the meniscus to shift. And that might be unusual for someone who is not used to seeing pediatric patients and these with these um, complex discoid menisci and these meniscocapsular tears. I know that in our past, we have sometimes just called something as a bucket handle tear. And then we've gotten the feedback from the orthopedic surgeon later that it was a background discoid meniscus. So that has been helpful feedback for us to have in the back of our head. And sometimes what I like to do is when there's a tear is and it's a displaced tear, in my mind, I kind of put that fragment back where it should go. And then I look and see, is that too much meniscus? So those are things that I found helpful in my practice. And obviously, you know, we get better with the feedback that you guys can provide to us. But to answer your question, no, I do not think an MR arthrogram is needed in a a fresh knee (laughs) without surgery. You know, there's been an explosion in musculoskeletal ultrasound and ultrasonography over the last decade or so plus. Do you find that there, I'm, I'm still wrestling personally as how, how to integrate that into a pediatric sports medicine practice and, and what things that may be useful for and what things that may be not? Because obviously I'm thinking a lot more bone conditions for most of the kids that I see for their injuries. But in the big picture of things, do you think that there is any role of ultrasound in helping to diagnose a discoid meniscus? I think there have been a couple problem-solving situations where it can be helpful, particularly if the patient would need to be sedated or something for an MRI. I think it's a good place to start. And if you can do kind of dynamic imaging and the patient can hop in like the party tricks that Jen was talking about, if they can reproduce that. And But with ultrasound, we can only see the periphery. Usually I can see kind of the periphery of the meniscus. So I could potentially see if it was extruded beyond the expected level of the edge of the femoral condyle and the tibial proximal tibia. And I could see if there was like an adjacent parameniscal cyst, something like that. So we have done it in a few problem solving situations, but usually not of much diagnostic utility. You know, we don't want to be remiss as far as when we're talking about the discoid meniscus, but we do want to think we have a, a fair number of listeners who are learners. So our medical students and residents out there, how do we approach, what do we think about what should be on our differential diagnosis if someone comes into our clinics with a knee that pops or clicks? And what what are the things that we should be thinking about besides discoid meniscus? Obviously, the party trick part is an obvious thing, but that snapping and popping on that outer side of the knee could be some other things. So I'll let Nick and John and Jen kind of chime in as far as what things they're thinking about so that we make sure that we're keeping things complete. Yeah, Mark, that's a great point. I think other things that can kind of go pop would be chondral fragmentation, let's say an osteochondritis desiccans lesion that has become unstable or has formed a loose body. And then, you know, if there's some trauma leading up to the symptoms, then obviously, you know, your ligamentous causes ACL and potentially patellofemoral instability be some things that come to mind. Snapping, like an IT band snapping sort of syndrome external to the knee joint itself. Yeah, and I think too, don't forget to, you know, check out the tibiofibular joint, proximal tib-fib joint. Definitely have seen in patients that have a little bit of instability in that anterior tibiofibular ligament. Sometimes they can have a little bit of pain because that joint moves a little too much. I've seen that in some of my older high school athletes, maybe not as common in younger kids that you may suspect discoid in, but, you know, something to inspect for sure. And Jen mentioned it before too, kind of the hypermobility syndrome. So looking at, you know, maybe a Baton score or scale and seeing what their generalized hyperlaxity is, because some of these patients too may just have, uh, you know, be on the spectrum of a collagen disorder, whether it's Ehlers-Danlos or something more benign. 
And I think something else that's also pretty rare when I see these is you can have a structure called a plica and you can get snapping plica over the femoral condyles. And so if I'm feeling, you know, my clinical exam is showing some sort of lateral snapping and I go to the MRI and I see that the meniscus is normal, that's something else that I start looking for is, is this patient have potentially a prominent inflamed plica that could be causing their popping and snapping. And my uh, alluding to the bone issues before, don't forget the symptomatic osteochondroma as well around that proximal tibia or distal femur as possible sources there too of the muscles starting to snap across one of those if it gets large enough. So that obviously we'll probably see a little bit more in our, our older patients, but certainly something to consider there. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue talking with our guests about the discoid meniscus. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. We are back and we're continuing our discussion today with some of the members of the PRISM Society, the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society, and we're talking about the discoid meniscus today. So from a surgical standpoint, what options do we have or even non-surgical options? You know, when we're talking about these patients, they come in and we've diagnosed them now with a discoid meniscus. What's your decision tree for John or Jen as far as whether you're going to suggest having this patient undergo surgery? I think some of it, you know, initially is, is this an incidental finding that they're coming in for some other reason? And I'm, I'm finding this, you know, just on an MRI as part of some other, you know, potential workup that I'm doing, or is this something that's truly symptomatic? So I think I kind of break them down into those two categories. First of all, is, is this really the cause of their problems and their symptoms? Or is this something that maybe they have just some anterior knee pain and have a really bad case of patella tendonitis, and they got referred to me because of the incidental finding of a discoid meniscus? yet they're completely asymptomatic. And so I think I put them into those two categories, first of all. The MRI does really help me, though, in guiding the conversation with the family because, you know, as I, I alluded to before, when you start really showing signs of instability and tearing, that's only going to get worse. And the prognosis is potentially only worse for the, the longevity of that knee, worsening of the tear, potentially cartilage damage. And so the actual severity of, of tearing and instability on the MRI in someone who maybe is a little less symptomatic may also push my hand a little bit more surgically. 
I think those are all great points. And I think that the child that shows up, I think my youngest patient thus far has been a four-year-old that had surgical intervention for symptomatic discoid. If they come in with the inability to extend the knee, again, that's something you know I'll, I'll touch on again. And the family is really not wanting to proceed with surgery, which is kind of a common thing when you're dealing with a four-year-old, five-year-old, and the family's like, holy, you know, I can't believe we're going to have to you know, do an operation on my four-year-old. Then sometimes I'll give them a very brief period of non-operative treatment, you know, three to four weeks with PT to see if they can kind of resolve their inability to go straight. But if that does not improve, I mean, that sometimes then can become a, a permanent issue. And that's something that would almost become an absolute indication to proceed surgically in a very young child with a symptomatic discoid. If it's otherwise just some mild pain, clicking and clunking, you can do a, a trial non-operative treatment. But a lot of times, like Jen said, that's going to continue to cause symptoms. The other thing that sometimes will have me refer to physical therapy prior to surgery is to really figure out what the child's rehab potential is and to establish a working relationship with the physical therapist to make sure they have access to physical therapy. As Jen alluded to, if you're taking care of a patient who maybe does not have commercial insurance and does not have access to good physical therapy, and you want to go and do a saucerization, a reshaping of this meniscus and potentially a peripheral rim stabilization procedure, there's rehab consequences that are going to you know need to be taken care of to have a good outcome from your surgical intervention. So sometimes just even you know two to four visits, establishing care with the physical therapy, making sure the child can get it because these, again, are very young children that are still developing psychologically and they have different social stresses, you know, in their life and family issues sometimes that you have to kind of all make sure all these things are working to your advantage when you're taking care of these patients with these conditions uh, surgically to optimize your outcome. Yeah, John, man, that makes my heart feel good hearing that. <laughs> you know, I think so many times patients have difficulty getting to us and you know, I think there's things that respond well to physical therapy. And then I think there's things that are likely going to be treated surgically. And I definitely think this is one of those things that is likely going to be treated surgically. If I'm being honest, I've never seen one of these without the plan, at least for them to be repaired. What I would say is definitely everything you mentioned about the psychology of rehab and getting them connected with someone to create that relationship, to build that trust. I think too, like we can help set the expectations you guys, fortunately, see a ton of patients, and we're lucky enough at TCH to see one patient every hour. And so we get to spend a lot more time with the patient and the parent and kind of explain any questions they may have and just kind of back up the messaging that you guys have already started. And I think when we can set that expectation as a medical and physical therapy team, that's going to lead to better patient satisfaction, better retention for the rehab process, and ultimately a better outcome for that kiddo. So all those things you mentioned are really big. I'd echo all of those sentiments. And, and I agree with John. I think some of the most difficult conversations I have are with some of my young patients. You know, three and four is a similar age that I have as my youngest. And sometimes they come in and the only complaint is they just won't straighten their knee, but the child will run, jump, play. And that's the only complaint. And it's sometimes very difficult to propose a surgery, understanding the long-term implications if that patient does keep that knee flexion contracture. And to Nick and John's point is the conversation I have with my parents and patients really in regards to almost any sports medicine type surgery is I get them on the table for you know an hour or a couple hours, but it's that relationship with their physical therapist that's going to be the next two, three, four four months, maybe even longer if it's a longer ACL recovery. And so establishing that relationship early, I think really is what helps these outcomes for the patients and really maximize their outcomes. And I would just add to that and say, I have seen some really, really tough 
post-operative complications when people haven't gotten into physical therapy within like a week or two. And so I just want to encourage everyone to try and facilitate that process as best as possible. I think the idea of getting them in before surgery is probably the best way to facilitate that because it kind of makes them go through the process of scheduling an appointment and doing all the paperwork and all that stuff. And then it's easy to get in after the surgery. But, you know, I've seen some terrible, and I'm sure you guys have, you know, experienced this as well, some terrible knee flexion contractures because they didn't understand that they should put the pillow under their heel, not their knee when they're resting at home, you know, and the kid comes in with a 30 degree knee flexion contracture. And, you know, I'm concerned about tearing the repair, trying to fix it. That's just, I think the downside of, of not getting into PT quick enough after the surgery. And ultimately, you know, PT is like insurance for that repair. Obviously you guys did a lot of hard work and it's our job to protect it and also help them get back to hundred percent. So what are our options when we're talking about, Jen said, they're on the table. So they're on the table now. What are you going to do surgically or consider surgically if you have someone with a discoid meniscus? Obviously, that may change if they have just a symptomatic discoid meniscus that's not torn versus one that's torn, or, or maybe it won't. So either one of you, feel free to chime in and talk to us. Yeah, Mark, I think this is definitely something where you know you really want to make sure you're playing like home court advantage and you have your whole team in place. And if you want to use a golf analogy, you have everything in that golf bag from pitching wedge to approach wedges to your umbrella to your ball snagger and everything possible, you know, everything but the kitchen sink to do some of these repairs. Sometimes you need a small arthroscope for the small knees like the four-year-olds. And then again, too, if you're taking care of a bigger adolescent, you know, you're going to run the gamut with what you're going to use. And then that's the same thing, too, from a technical standpoint, when you're trying to change the shape of this tissue, that's usually our first order of business is reshaping the meniscus from the discus or the frisbee to a more C-shaped meniscus, leaving about an eight millimeter rim of tissue. So you need different biters and cutters and shavers and curved shavers and straight shavers to, to do some of that work. And then after that's done, you're really going to now, you know, look at what is your stability looking like and how are you going to approach that and pair it. And if you're doing a meniscus repair, you need to be prepared sometimes to do an inside out repair with an incision laterally to protect the nearby neurovascular structures. And I think Nick alluded to, you know, some of the complications where patients have had uh, perineal nerve injuries or worse, you know, following some repairs that are done. And sometimes these very small knees with all inside devices. So, you know, being prepared to do an inside out repair is something that you need to have in your armamentarium, all inside devices, where you can do a meniscal capsular reattachment. Meniscus base repairs now are becoming more popular where you can have suture passers to throw sutures within the meniscal tissue and approximate it. And then as you start moving along more anteriorly, having outside in options and different needles to pass sutures and be able to tie those down directly to the capsule are some of the tricks and tips and things you need to have, I think, when you approach these cases surgically. Yeah, I would completely agree with all of that. And I think that's something, you know, people who are, are really getting more comfortable taking care of, of discoid meniscus, really that evaluation of where is the instability, where is the tearing, and you really need to be comfortable using a wide variety of, of meniscus repair techniques. Not everything can be fixed with just an all-inside technique as, as easy as those are. And so having familiarity with multiple different equipment types is really important. 
I think one of the other, the big pearls that I would also provide that I've learned through my work on the prism meniscus rig is really the value of changing your viewing portal. For those who see arthroscopy, we typically have our view is from a lateral based viewing portal, meaning that the meniscus is below us, directly below us when we're talking about the majority of the time, the lateral discoid meniscus. And so really looking at that anterior instability can be very, very difficult. And I think we're also a little bit biased with the current classification system. We have this Risberg variant really is just addressing and discussing posterior capsule deficiency. And we really, I think, are just kind of at the tip of the iceberg of understanding anterior instability. And so anybody who's approaching these or who comes across and does a diagnose one arthroscopically, I would highly recommend switching your viewing portal into the medial portal so that that way you can directly view the anterior meniscocapsular junction, get a probe in there. Because I think that in the past, anterior instability has been highly underrated and undertreated and probably uh, has accounted for a lot of failures and bad outcomes. And we move forward, we'd like to do better, both from a classification system as well as just diagnostic arthroscopy and repair techniques of the anterior instability. Yeah, Jen, I think those are great points. And then to kind of piggyback on viewing medially, sometimes too, as you're passing sutures, I'll make a, another counter incision or an accessory medial portal to view medially and pass my sutures medially, especially taking care of like a mid-body instability or tear. A lot of reasons two patients come back to surgery after having discoid meniscus surgery is because they're still symptomatic, whether that's pain or I would say more frequently, they still have the click clunk. So I think as a surgeon, I try to tell myself and I definitely tell my residents that are working with me is to you know, do a good preoperative examination with the patient awake, a good exam on their anesthesia. And if you see that they're clicking, clunking, snapping, inability to get the knee straight, it's really, you know, on you to, to be very diligent that you're not leaving that operating room until that exam is different. And I think there's, you know, two ways to get to that point, maybe more. One is to take out the whole meniscus and do a total meniscectomy that probably will, you know, solve the problem. But I think most of us that do this work are into meniscal preservation and trying to keep as, as much of this tissue in the knee as possible. But if you're not able to saucerize that meniscus and stabilize that meniscus to the periphery and the patient is still having a reproducible snap or clunk on the table under anesthesia, you really haven't done your due diligence, I think, in repairing that meniscus. Then if you're doing meniscal repair too, you know, a lot of us too are doing some sort of augmentation to try to augment healing or increase the ability for the patients to heal. And uh, whether that's platelet-rich plasma injections or autologous condition, plasma or stimulating the intracondylar notch with, uh, you know, marrow stimulation with like chondral picks and stuff like that. That's another thing that you would need to have in your bag of tricks to try to enhance healing of, of some of these menisci. And then rolling into the kind of the post-operative course is, you know, what are you going to do after you fix this? How are you going to protect your patient? Are you going to use a brace, not use a brace, weight-bearing, not weight-bearing? So a lot of things to consider. And then John and Jen, I had a question for you guys. I'm always trying to read our physician's operative reports. Can you speak a little more in detail about outside in versus inside out or like all inside repairs? The one time I saw a negative outcome from an inside out repair, a kiddo had had his lateral meniscus repaired. He had a discoid menisci and a suture was passed around his common fibular nerve and then sutured to the capsule. And obviously, you know, he presented to physical therapy with like burning down his leg. And we initially had thought, you know, he possibly had cut the common fibular nerve. So luckily the suture was just passed around it. They released the suture and he returned to normal. 
but can you guys kind of speak about that and how we as physical therapists can read y'all's operative reports and maybe allow that to inform our treatment after? Yeah, Nick, we have the same exact case here in Southern California. The patient was treated, I think he was maybe 10 at the time, by another surgeon, had an all-inside repair. So that's usually done now with a device manufactured by a company that has a like little plastic barb or a suture on it. And you can penetrate the meniscus and the capsule, and then you kind of pull a trigger or push a trigger, and that will deploy the plastic barb or the suture past the meniscus, past the capsule. And then as you withdraw the needle from the meniscus, that should catch the capsule. And the case that you're alluding to and the case that I've seen is sometimes that can get into a nearby structure. That nerve's very close, especially as the patients are very young, and this has kind of been studied to the capsule in the very young knee. So if you're kind of over-penetrating with these all-inside devices, you can kind of catch that nerve. In, in my case, same thing too. The patient had kind of excruciating pain for the first two to three weeks. I got an MRI postoperatively. They found that the common fibular nerve or the perineal nerve was out in, an, in a place it shouldn't have been. They took the patient back. The barb had pierced the nerve. They put a neural tube on the nerve after they took the barb out and the patient fully recovered. And then I had the chance or the opportunity to revise this because the patient still uh, had instability and needed to have the meniscus stabilized. And then that was done with a inside out repair. So for the inside out repair now, instead of using a meniscal device, you're using like a zone specific cannula within the knee and you're taking kind of long needles and you're directly passing those through the meniscus, through the capsule. But now you usually have some sort of metal protector protecting the nearby vascular nerve structures to prevent the needle from hitting them. So at that point, you would retrieve the needle from inside the knee to outside the knee directly when you're doing that type of repair. So that's kind of the inside out and the all inside technique. And then like I had also mentioned, there's kind of the meniscus base repair now where you can totally avoid the capsule and not pierce the capsule at all and just kind of keep all your sutures within the meniscus. But it's a little bit more technically challenging and in a discoid, if you don't have a lot of working space, that becomes an issue. And then the outside in repair kind of, you know, also carries risks with it as well. We're taking a needle from outside the joint, piercing it inside the joint and under direct arthroscopic visualization and passing sutures that way. I think for people who do this work, really, if you want to be super safe, probably the inside out repairs is the way to do it, but it's a little bit more morbid for the patient. It's a little bit maybe harder for you to rehab because then you have a bigger incision to deal with, potentially increases your risk of wound dehiscence and infection. You know, and, and as far as the op reports go, I'm not sure, you know, there's definitely variation into how detailed, you know, surgeons are in their operative reporting as to, you know, how verbose they get into what type of repairs they did. So from a PT standpoint, you know, having a good working relationship with your surgeon and I think picking up the phone and kind of having these conversations as to what did you do and what should I look out for is probably a good take-home point. And I think the only thing that I would add to that is that that complication is something that I is just absolutely devastating, want to avoid at all costs. And actually, one of the very first things that I do when I'm planning out my surgery and my incisions is I actually mark out the exact trajectory and path of that nerve on the skin before I start any sort of arthroscopy. And I make my residents do it as well. I mark out where the fibular head is, where the joint line is, the course of that nerve, because you really want to make sure at all costs that you avoid it with your surgical technique. And I think just having that awareness initially of where it is, we need to avoid it will help you. And I agree with John that 
operative notes can vary widely from very generic pre-templated notes to much more detailed. It can be very difficult to decipher, but if you're seeing any sort of repair done around the the body of the meniscus or the posterior horn, those are things that would put those those structures potentially at risk. Anterior is obviously a little bit more safe from a, a neurovascular risk standpoint. And then Nick, you get this kid who comes after someone like John or Jen has done surgery on them. What are your goals for that person in the rehab period postoperatively? First thing I ask them is, have they ever been to physical therapy before? (laughs) I think that is the most important question we can ask our patients as physical therapists because it allows you to set the expectation. You get all sorts of answers about that. Sometimes they've had terrible experiences. Sometimes they've had great experiences, but you get to know before you get started what they're expecting. You know, it it depends sometimes surgeon to surgeon, how much weight bearing they want to allow after the surgery. I think the big questions and the stuff we talked about in our PRISM on-demand content was basically the debate on brace or no brace, weight bearing and range of motion and how much, if any. And basically my goal for them, depending on the type of repair done is to initially start some partial weight bearing with crutches, really in almost any case. I will say that it is important how we communicate partial weight bearing. I've had patients walk in a week after a meniscus repair, 16-year-old football player that I saw, walking on his toes. (laughs) And that was because someone told him to do toe-touch weight bearing. And so he was walking on a bent knee with no brace on his toe, (laughs) which is like the ultimate way to stress the meniscus. And we had to instruct him like, no man, like you still need to use the crutches. And when they say toe touch weight bearing, they mean just barely put your toe on the ground. Man, that was, thankfully he had a good outcome, but that was kind of scary. So I know some of our surgeons like the terms, you know, foot flat weight bearing and just barely putting your foot on the ground, keeping the knee straight when you weight bear. Those are the, some of the things that I think are really important. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of bracing. I think that it hasn't been shown to prevent repair failure, but I will say, I think it depends on the patient. Sometimes you have those kids who are really go-getters and putting them in a brace is going to keep them from doing something silly. And then I think you have those kids who maybe are a little bit more psychologically apprehensive. Maybe they have a high TSK 11 score pre-op or something. Those may be the patients that you don't put in a brace because they may develop a joint contracture or continue to be afraid of weight bearing. So I think that depends on patient to patient. And then, you know, I don't know, I'd love to hear what John and Jen and, you know, all of you guys think about, you know, weight bearing postoperatively, you know, what are y'all's thoughts and, and what do you advise patients to do? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I do think the literature and everything is very variable. You know, there's some discussion that especially if it's a peripheral tear that that weight bearing and extension actually is a compressive force as the condyle, you know, comes down centrally over the tibial plateau and is actually a compressive force and is that a good thing for your repair or not? That story you just told me, I just grew five gray hairs thinking about that because exactly what I don't want that patient to do, that tiptoe gait, that's a pretty concerning thing. And so I think that there's some argument for that. You know, secondarily, really depends on how tenuous your repair is. What was the quality of the tissue? How concerned are you about actual failure? And we get a benefit taking care of pediatric patients that they they tolerate toe touch weight bearing uh, or partial weight bearing much better than you know, say, our older or geriatric population getting around on crutches. They've got the energy, enthusiasm, muscle strength to be able to do that. And so you're really weighing really that patient's risks of of their outcomes. Of are you worried? Like you address the psychological factors about their ability to actually get off the crutches, use the brace and kind of wean from that versus what your actual repair is. One thing I would address in regards to the bracing, a lot of these kids do come in with these flexion contractures. And for me, the 
the mainstay of the brace is to keep their extension. From a surgical standpoint, treating extension and flexion contractures are very different and getting back that terminal extension if that can be very, very difficult surgically, talking about posterior capsular releases, femoral osteotomies, you know, much more aggressive surgical techniques are needed to get that last terminal extension if they can't get that versus flexion is much easier by cleaning out scar tissue, patellofemoral mobilization. And so any patient that I have that's had a preoperative extension loss, flexion contracture, that's someone I'm going to put in a brace really to protect their extension because I don't want them to lose whatever we gained on the table. And I, I think I've, I love that. And I think that's a really common thought that even, you know, I've had our surgeons say, but I think I've seen like a lot of problems with putting a kid in a brace, their knee is still flexed, like they don't wear them right. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's actually helpful or not putting them in a brace if they do have that flexion contracture. I think it helps them avoid bending it. But what I've found is what kids will do is they'll kind of externally rotate their hip and they'll kind of bend their knee inside the brace or the brace won't be tight enough to keep their knee straight. And then they'll still have like a a small flexion contracture. Now, I think if they have like a severe flexion contracture, then like you're 100% right. I think definitely need to put them in a brace to keep them from flexing it. But probably, you know, what I've seen just from my experience is Kids don't wear those right. And especially if they get into physical therapy late, like four to eight weeks after surgery, like they're going to have that flexion contracture, even if they did have that brace. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Nick. There's actually uh, something called a zero degree knee pillow. It's like a surgery knee pillow. You can actually get it on Amazon that kind of keeps the heel in a foam wedge that kind of keeps the patient from externally rotating their knee. Because I've seen the same thing in the brace is you put them in the brace with the intention. And I do the same exact thing that Jen, I think, does is I, I brace everybody after the surgery for several reasons. And one of my rationales is to have them, you know, keep the terminal extension that I've worked so hard to get. But I think a lot of it is education and re- reinforcement. I usually operate on Thursdays and Fridays during the week. And then I will see the patient back. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the following week. So I think very, you know, quick and close follow-up is super important to kind of rehash all these things and kind of re-emphasize stuff. I go toe-touch weight-bearing. I haven't had anybody, you know, walk around on their tippy toes, but I do not go full weight-bearing on any of these uh, menisci. I think one thing to note that we haven't really talked about is the structure of the discoid meniscus is not normal when compared to a typically developed lateral meniscus. So you're not dealing with normal structural tissue here as well because we're dealing with abnormal tissue. And I think the discoid meniscus doesn't necessarily follow the rules as a normal meniscus would with the meniscus repair. I I typically go toe-touch weight-bearing for six weeks post-op if I'm doing any sort of repair. If it's just a straight saucerization and a reshaping of the meniscus with no suturing, then it's kind of weight-bearing is tolerated in the brace. The rationale for the brace is to try to help restore terminal extension, but again, I think more goes into that than just the brace. And then the brace is usually there until they can, you know, have quad control and demonstrate that they're able to get terminal extension on their own. If I do an inside-out repair, I've been doing this uh, over a decade now, I've learned the hard way that sometimes those wounds will be hiss. And if you're using like a, a locked range of motion brace, the disc on the range of motion brace sometimes will rub against your incision that's usually closed with absorbable sutures in this very young age group and population. So sometimes I'll use a knee immobilizer in that group. Also, these people go to war. Uh, it's also known as school, whether it's an elementary school, middle school, or high school, and there's other kids there. So I have also kind of put them in the brace as armor 
to protect them while they're at school. And then further going down the rehab path, it's usually, you know, the running pretty much if I'm doing a repair almost up to that six month point, and I'm kind of refraining from sports for, for six months. I hope, you know, not too many people listen to this who are my patients, but I'm also trying to, you know, pad things a little bit. Because I think if you give kids an inch, they take a mile. So if I tell them four months, four months becomes, you know, two to three months. If I tell them six months, maybe six months is four months. And then the, you know, hyper-compliant family and child that actually listens to me is probably to their benefit to maybe refrain from sports a little bit longer after these repairs. Because these are very young children with lots of decades of life ahead of them. We can preserve their meniscal tissue. I think it's, you know, it's going to be hopefully give them a better outcome long-term and less risk of osteoarthritis. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think it's better to be cautious with return to sport than it is to be aggressive, especially in our younger kids. And I, I did want to you know, speak to the physical therapists and rehab professionals, the ATs out there that are listening. I don't want people to be afraid of really pushing knee extension after these surgeries. I've seen younger physical therapists be afraid to press on the knee a little bit and get it straight because it hurts, but you know, it hurts the patient and sometimes they're afraid to hurt the knee, but that knee needs to get straight. And I think the only case that I'm cautious about getting their physiological extension back is when they have like 10 degrees of hyperextension on the other side. If they're, you know, extremely lax, these are not typically the kids that you need to worry about getting full extension on, but greater than 10 degrees of hyperextension has been shown to be a risk factor for ACL injury and other things like that. So I just want to make sure that you know, we're being aggressive enough after surgery to get that knee straight. And then just to speak again to the weight bearing piece, I think it does depend, like you said, John, on the quality of the meniscal tissue, which I think is why it's so important for us to read the operative reports and maybe <laughs> you know, important for you guys to write detailed operative notes so we can hopefully understand them you know, and, and, and let that inform our rehab. But, you know, when I think of weight bearing on maybe a meniscus in, a, in an older kid, you know, that's maybe a healthier meniscus, you know, I, I think of those hoop stresses and I think of like a slinky. And if you took a slinky and you put it like a cylinder up and down and you took a tennis ball and put it on the slinky, as you press that tennis ball down and weight bear onto that slinky, the slinky kind of expands into the capsule, right? And you can think of that as how the hoop stresses work for the meniscus. And so, I, you know, I do think that that weight bearing can be helpful in meniscal healing and has not been shown to be harmful. But to your point, there have not been a lot of studies on discoid menisci and specific rehabilitation after that. So it's probably better to be safe than sorry. But I don't want us to forget about the really negative consequences of immobilization and non-weight bearing, you know, such as not even just the physical ones like atrophy of muscle tissue but also the psychological ones that have to do with, you know, a patient returning to full activity. But like you said, they're younger kids and they're resilient. So if we do a period of toe touch weight bearing for six weeks, I definitely think we'll be able to get, get that muscle tissue back. Great discussion, everybody. Any final parting comments when thinking about discoid meniscus that we may not have covered? And I'll start with uh, Jen. Yeah, this obviously we could go on and on about this because there's so much research that needs to be done. And I think one of the amazing things about PRISM, why I'm such such a proud member of this is, is work that we've done putting together these rigs, these research interest groups. And, and John and I are part of the meniscus rig, taking a look at you know meniscus injuries and it also in partic particular discoid meniscus injuries. And I think from our standpoint, we really have just you know touched the surface of, of where we're going to be going with these. We've started and, and developed a new classification 
education system so that we can actually speak apples to apples about discoid meniscus, which right now we have a very difficult time doing. And so that hopefully paper will be coming out this year in 2021. And it's it's really that classification, improved understanding that will help us guide our treatment options as well as you know our patient-based outcomes uh, so that we can improve our care for these patients. And so I'm really excited to be you know part of this meniscus rig and future research so we can take better care of these patients. I think these are challenging cases. I think these are not typical menisci. And I think if you're not treating discoids multiple times per year in patients that are, you know, in the first and second decade of life, that sometimes getting these cases into the hands of somebody who does it more frequently will lead to hopefully and potentially less turmoil for the physician and for the patient. There's still a lot of questions about rehabilitation for a discoid menisci after the repair And so I would just encourage physical therapists to stick to what we know. You know, we know that neuromuscular electrical stimulation works to encourage muscle tissue to work again. We know that it's important to have a period of very limited weight bearing to protect the repair. Trust, you know, your surgeons, if they want the person to be toe touch weight bearing for six weeks, then make that kid be toe touch weight bearing for six weeks because they saw that meniscus. We didn't see it. So I think we do have to have a level of trust, even though I know as sports physical therapists, we want to get them back to hundred percent and be aggressive with our treatment. There's time to be cautious. And then the last thing that I haven't mentioned that I think is very important when you do see a medial meniscus repair, you know, discoid or not, if they have that medial meniscus repair, and especially if they have a posterior horn repair, be very, very careful not to do any kind of hamstring activation after that surgery, because there are meniscal attachments from the hamstring, and we can possibly hurt that repair by doing hamstring activation. Well, we will make sure to have in our show notes information and some links to some things, especially when we talk about the radiology part of that, it's always good to have some links to pictures. So we'll make sure to have that on there and links to various resources through PRISM. Really like to thank all my guests today and those who attended the PRISM virtual annual meeting this past January. It was uh, truly a great meeting. Be sure to check out our entire podcast episode library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod. And we do appreciate your feedback and your five-star ratings through your favorite podcast platform. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.